You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Twenty twenty, what a year it has been! While COVID nineteen has revealed the gaps within our healthcare systems, the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery revealed the chasms within our country's racial systems of protection. The conversation sparked after these tragic losses, among many others, has led to a deep self reflection for many Americans, from social structures to personal bias, and to a better understanding of systemic racism within professions. The world of audiology is included in that. Today, we're going to discuss how these conversations and their resulting development can influence our clinical practice with a fantastic guest, a great friend of mine, Dr. Logan Faust, A-U-D-C-C-A-F-A-A-A. She's got all the credentials, y'all. She's a pediatric audiologist currently working for Stanford Children's Health, Lucille Packard Children's Hospital in Palo Alto, California. Logan completed her clinical externship at Nemours Aldupont Hospital for Children and graduated from James Madison University in 2019 with her doctorate of audiology, along with yours truly, Go Dukes. She's also a double Duke, just like me. We love our JMU. Logan is passionate about providing optimal care to disenfranchised populations and works to include her experiences and knowledge of cultural competencies in her clinical work, as well as precepting students to become mindful of their own personal implicit bias when serving various patient populations. I'm so excited to have Logan on. She and I have had conversations in the past about things like this. She's such a great person to bounce ideas off of. She's open. She's honest. She's super, super smart, you guys. Dr. Logan Faust, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much. What a sweet thing to say about me. And uh, you know what, Cody, I was, excuse me, Dakota, I was talking to my husband about this this afternoon, and I realized we are going on 10 years of knowing each other, which is wild. What? Which is wild. It's so, it's hard to think in regards to chunks of time like that, but this will be our 10 years of knowing each other. Oh my gosh, that's true. Yep. Wow, that doesn't even feel possible, but that's amazing. We met because we were both in a scholarship program and we both didn't want to be at the meeting and we found our people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that look of, oh, you also yeah. are enjoying it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm so glad to, I, it was so cool to read your name and say, Dr. Logan Faust, like, you know what? We made it. We got it's, through it. We it's made wild. It. We're wild. Here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of doctors of audiology, um, in kind of preparing a little bit for our conversation, I wanted to get a sense of, you know, some of the demographics of the audiology profession. I pulled some data um, it was either from the ASHA or from the AAA. I think it was from the ASHA survey of like employed clinicians. So that's SLPs and AUDs. Yes. Have you looked into any of that data, like in terms of the demographic demographics of audiology, like as a field? Absolutely. And I'm sure that we probably looked at the same resources and are familiar with the same resources because unfortunately our our field doesn't have an overarching international guideline or anything like that. So it's hard to get data on this kind of stuff unless you are members of specific organizations. And so um, the ASHA 2019, I think it's the member and affiliate profile, which are both AUDs and SLPs. They do break down the information really well within that data. Uh, But 
based off of that, it seems like, uh, and across everything that I've seen, it seems like about 90% of the field is Caucasian or identify as white, and then 10% are other. And, and this fluctuates very slightly. There was another census done by the Students Academy of Audiology in 2020, more or less the same. But when we're looking at the demographics, specifically about race, we're looking at most of the profession is 90%, it says, of, of Caucasian descent. And then anywhere between 10 and I think up to 15% of other, but all of those other groups aren't usually more than 5% within that group. And so sure. uh, the minority population is extremely small considering our profession is already considered small, but yeah. this is a very, very small group within the overarching field. Yeah. And that survey, I, I, I really loved the breakdown because it not only included, you know, the percent of audiologists who identify as Asian, Black, Native Hawaiian, but it also included the U.S. statistic or how many, you know, people in the U.S. population are that demographic. Yeah. comparison, that's where you think, oh, wow, we have a breakdown here. Like, it's one thing to think, well, as audiologists, you know, the diversity isn't real. Well, like, well, what's our metric? Let's look at the U.S. population. Oh, we are way off the mark. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think it was 8% of ASHA members, so that's SLPs and AUDs, identify as a racial minority. 27.6% of the yeah. U.S. population identifies as a racial minority. So, yeah, there's a there's a clear representation gap there. Yeah, and I think we're, we're going to talk about this a little bit later as well, but that makes sense in the broader sense of who are the people who are going to college? Who are the people who are have been afforded the opportunity to get a master's degree or a doctorate degree? And so when you look at to those more segmented parts of the population, African-Americans or people of Asian descent making up about 3% to 6% combined of the demographic makes sense because those are the same demographics of people who are getting these degrees to begin with. Gotcha. Yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. There's a limitation there when you think of just higher education being a huge factor in exactly. defining the profession. Yeah, exactly. Really limiting. So what do you think, like, when it comes to thinking about demographics of audiology as a profession? So here, here's the thing. I've tried looking into this kind of earlier in the year when these conversations were really big. We've been talking about having this conversation, like, as a podcast episode for a while. I'm glad we <laughs> yeah. finally got to it yeah. <laughs> at the end of this insane year. Um but like in the midst of that, I was thinking, okay, what are some resources from, you know, our governing bodies like ASHA, AAA that can be helpful in, I don't know, be readings, things that, things that are specific. Cause you can read about implicit bias. You can read about, you know, a lot of the topics that came up this year, but none of it is really specific to what things we might see in clinical practice as yeah. audiologists. Yeah. So how do you feel like these like racial disparities in terms of representation in audiology, how does that play out in, you know? in our world, maybe in practice or in research or in education? Absolutely. So it, regardless of what field you're in, regardless of it, if you're an audiologist, you're an SLP, or if you're in some other segment and somehow you're listening to this podcast, diversity only strengthens and improves the lived experiences of others and the field of work. Uh, and that's because you are only going to be privy to the life that you've lived and the experiences mm -hmm. of the patients that you serve. And so by having a very specifically segmented 
group of professionals that are working towards a goal, they are going to miss some things that are going to be so obvious to other people because those are not their primary experiences. They're not their concern. And that's mm. not to say that it's not their concern because they don't care. And that's not to say that it's not their concern because they're not looking for solutions for all people, but it's because there are just simply some things that aren't going to matter to you uh, Dakota, as a white male, that matters significantly to me as a black woman. It's it's just different, and so sure it, it's going to impact a lot of different things. So, in, in our field specifically, uh, asking questions about the products that are not made for all patients—that is a very blatant thing that I think most people can easily understand because uh, there are some devices and some uh, colors of devices that aren't made for other demographics of people other than the majority. And you might say, well, that makes sense. You know, we there's a majority of people who typically are the ones wearing hearing aids or wearing these devices. But just because you have a majority doesn't mean that I don't deserve something that looks like me too. Uh, mm. And so specifically, one thing that came to mind was the Adhere. Are you familiar with Adhere, the phone conduction device? I remember seeing it. I've never worked with it personally, but it's like a sticker bone conduction device. Exactly. It, it's truly amazing. It, it really, really is. And so I'm not disparaging the device. I'm not going to talk poorly about how it works or anything like that. However, the one thing that when this was first being introduced, and I think it was introduced during our fourth year rotation or sometime during that time, uh, they were talking about the adhesive of the sticker. And we know the adhesive isn't going to last forever. It's a, it's a sticker. Um, but at the time, I think they were promoting that it lasts about four or five days. And so I asked a question to our rep. I said, well, who did you test the sticker on? And they didn't have the answer for that. And I already knew what the answer was. I'm sure that their sample or the people they were testing it on were primarily white because that's usually what our patient demographic is, typically sure. primarily white. But that doesn't include the demographic of patients that I'm going to be working with. There are different mm. kinds of skin. If you have oily skin, this adhesive is just not going to stay on you <laughs> as well as it would on someone who doesn't have oily skin. And sure. there are different demographics of people whose skin are more oily. My biggest question, because I am black and I use black hair care products, all of my products have oil in them. Mm -hmm. And so oils and adhesives don't mix. And so I tried it on myself and the sticker only stayed on me for about three days, which is now what I think the recommendation is. But it was frustrating for me because I'm like, if you would have tried this on patients who use hair care products like me or had skin like me, you would have already known this, but you didn't. Yeah. And so these are the kind of questions that aren't being asked because we don't have a, device, a diverse pool of people asking these questions. Mm, Another, wow. I've seen that impact there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, just in general, con increasing the cultural comp competency of your colleagues is such an important thing because. Um, at my current job, we share our experiences because they're my friends and I love them and, and they care for me. But there are things that, again, you're not going, to, you don't know what you don't know until someone tells you about it. So for instance, uh, I work with students at Stanford and there was a student who had someone come in for troubleshooting and she was telling me a little bit about this patient. She's like, oh, she comes in, she says she comes in every two to three months and you know, her hearing aid is always messed up and she doesn't know why and we don't know why. And I looked at the device and it was very clear to me that 
the reason why her hearing aid was messed up, she still had mic covers. She still had a device that used mic covers, um, the Phonak device. And it was gunked up with conditioner. <laughs> and Lord. I knew it was conditioner. This patient was a young African-American female. I had seen her in the waiting room. And when we passed each other, she asked me what hair care products I use, which is something that happens very frequently in my life when I pass another young lady who has curls like mine. Uh, and so it was just very, putting two to two together was so easy for me because I'm like, this girl is putting on her hearing aids while her hair is wet and her conditioner is getting in her mic covers and it's making wow. her, it's making her hearing aids sound bad. And she hasn't been back to the clinic in six months because that was the problem. And it's wow. just sharing little things like that or being cognizant enough to realize, oh, she's using products that are going to cause clogs in her hearing aid, you have to tell her, you either have to put your hearing aid on when your hair is dry or, do, you know, this, that, or the other. It's like that resolves the problem instead of her coming in every two months to get the same problem fixed. Wow. Yeah. First of all, yeah, it's, it's, it's so important <laughs> because I would have never known that that's what yeah. was going on. And that, I mean, that's such a great example too, of a very, something that's so simple to one person with this, with a certain life experience compared to another. And just the sharing that information with someone can make a world of difference. Exactly. And, I, and the thing is though, I haven't met a colleague, a person of color yet that would expect you to know this. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. something that, you know, this is something that I'm happy to share. And I'm like, why don't you try this and see if it works? And it, and it, and in our case, it did work. Sometimes it doesn't, but it's just that that's what having such a diverse work pool and having such a diverse field improves these small things that you would never think of because it's not something that you ever have to deal with at home. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'd be curious to get your perspective. We've been kind of running into this a lot lately um, with our cochlear implant patients Yeah. where um, particularly those who are African-American females. Um, I have a couple in mind that are uh, between like 16 and like 19 years old yeah. who are really starting to like do some cool like braids. braids. With their hair. I knew you were going to ask about braids. Yes. Go right ahead. Right. And so it's, I feel like I ha we have this like difficult conversation where it's like, okay, I can get you the strongest magnet that they make. Mm -hmm. And I don't want you to have to take away from how you express yourself through your hair because your magnet has to be in place. Like I want yeah. you to have a magnet that's strong enough to work regardless of what you do with your hair. Yeah. But at the same time, there's like a physical limitation of what the magnet can achieve. And there's nothing, <laughs> there's no more I can do other than, you know, wear a headband or something that's even more intrusive. Of so I always feel like I, I never feel like I am navigating that conversation the best way that I can Yeah. Um, to be sensitive to, you know, because I know, you know, in some cultures, the hair is so important and what you how you can express yourself with your hair is very important. I mean, in many cultures, uh, I, I never want to feel like I'm imposing on that from my perspective. But I'm just curious, do you have any thoughts on that? Are, are you working with cochlear implants or have you seen that experience in the past? I have definitely seen the experience. I don't currently work with cochlear implants, but I do work with a lot of bone conduction devices. And I run into this issue a lot, not so much anymore because I don't have a a large African-American population in San Jose and in Palo Alto, California. Uh, sure. But when I was doing my fourth year uh, around the Philadelphia area at Nemours uh, DuPont, I saw this a lot. And I had a lot of conversations with my preceptors about it because we would run into the same issue over and over again, specifically, honestly, with little girls and their hair, because braiding your hair is such a, such a big part of 
African-American culture. It was a part of my culture growing up. Growing up, I had my hair braided every weekend uh, and I loved it. And it was just one of those things. But the thing, how you approach this, the way that you can approach this where it's still professional and you're not being intrusive, but you're just telling them the fact is talking about braiding patterns because having the coolest style and having braids or having uh i'm gonna this this is a whole other conversation for a different co- podcast but having like a sew-in or a lace front and all those other things um a lot of those require getting your hair braided as the base for it okay and so when you are seeing patients with these kind of hairstyles or even if you think they may be interested in those kind of hairstyles you can braid your hair in a way that leaves the area that you need to be flat flat. Um, and, and that's just, that's just the truth. And so it's just, when you identify where their magnet is or what it is, you just have to tell them you have to braid your hair around this, or you have to leave your hair out in this area or do a thicker braid at the bottom. So you can leave this area flat for your device to work with Bajas. I was having issues where, uh, it looked like everything was connected the way it was, but because the little girls had cornrows or different kinds of braids, the the tension on the soft band wasn't tight enough. And so oh. it just wasn't making a connection the way that it should. And so the parents are like, oh, I don't think my little girl is hearing the way that she should with this device or uh, with the implants, wear time would look like it's really low because it's mm-hmm. not sitting the way that it should be sitting on. Yeah. And it and it's just talking about the braiding patterns. And that that's another thing. That's another thing that people don't know to bring up until you run into an issue, but that's not an offensive thing to say, all right, let's talk about your, your hair patterns and what you need to do to make this more successful for you. So that's like a reasonable. Oh, request, absolutely. Right? Okay. okay. Absolutely. That's, that's where I worry that I'm like, you know, coming off too strong or I don't know, just no, it's, it's, it's trying easy. to limit someone's sense of expression, you yeah, know, I, I don't want to get in there. But also you're not telling them not to braid their hair. That's, that's the difference. You're yeah. not telling them they can't do something. It's you're, you're telling them that it's a compromise. And so definitely braid your hair. This one section of your hair, the braids are going to have to look a little different, or they're going to have to be a little further apart. That typically is the solution. Instead of having these rows that are identical on the right hand side, if you have an implant, you just have to leave a gap that's large enough for your magnet to stay on because we want you to hear your hair is secondary to that. Sure. Wow. That's great insight. Thank you so much for telling me that. That's, oh, sure. that's really helpful. Um, yeah, that's what I'm running into a lot lately. Yeah. I'm like, oh, see, don't get me. This. Yeah. Don't get me started on hair. You know, I could talk for hours <laughs> about do you, that. Do you, have, do you have a sign name yet? Has anyone ever given you a sign name? Uh, no, I, I don't work with the deaf community that much, but I'm exactly. sure, I'm sure like it would be girl, crazy and big. Your girl would, would come into that name. I feel yeah. like. <laughs> awesome. Do you feel like there's anything else? Like, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole lot to, I think, unpack there in terms of our under our, you know, our cultural competencies, our understanding and our empathy impacting clinical practice, kind of like zooming out of that before we zoom back into it. Yeah. Anything else you think, like when we think of those uh, racial demographics of the profession at large, um, you mentioned with the ad here, like how it's affecting not like market research, but like product, you know, creation. Are there other things that you can think of maybe like clinical practice or in research anywhere like that, where you feel like those disparities also can kind of rear their head? Oh, I I think that there are, there are huge disparities in, in not only just market research, but also in product design and those kinds of things, because the pools that we're pulling for are the majority of the people that are wearing hearing aids. And that, that's a broader issue because, you know, I read something during undergrad that alluded to the fact that 
uh, black people and African-American people don't seem to have as much hearing loss, which is just not true. <laughs> it's not true. They have less access to health care and, you know, audiology being a field that tends to be more of an elective health care kind sure. of need than uh, something that would be more readily available in other insurances. Uh, you, you just have the people who can afford to be seen by the doctor being seen by the doctor and getting amplification and the people who can't don't. And so I think that because the demographics are the way that they are, we don't have necessarily the the people who are who need to be fighting in the corner of people of color the way that they should to expand the colors of hearing aids because mm. that beige I've never seen that beige match any single human uh, in in the world <laughs> regardless and of race re regardless of race I've yeah. never seen it match anybody and the beige sticker that actually comes with the ad here the only person that I've ever seen that actually match is me and I'm a very specific color of tan. And so it just, those considerations just aren't being met for whatever reason. But I think it's because there's no one at their home base saying, oh, maybe we should, we should expand the, the color options that are available, even though it may only be a hundreds of the unit that we make, you just make less of them. So, and they're still available. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, totally. I, and I was going to kind of, kind of jump on that. Could you expand on like, what moments like inclusivity like that mean to you? Like when you've oh my experienced goodness. something like that in your life, like if you were that child who was getting a hearing aid and you yeah. are that adult even, and you could pick the color and it was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, this like seriously matches my skin tone. I wasn't expecting that. I think it's not, not even so much for me because, because I am biracial and I, I will also say just a blanket this, cause I didn't say this at the beginning, even though I am a black woman, I am biracial, I am black and I am also white. And that comes with a whole lot of privileges that have been extended towards me and that I get to enjoy. Joy. Um, and so when it comes for something that looks like me, I'm very lucky because I can find a match pretty easily because the the nudes are typically in makeup anyway, I tend to be a food item. So the honeys and caramels and those kinds of things, I can find something that matches me pretty easily. But in my family, uh, where we're, my, my family is darker than I am, they have never had a Band-Aid that match. And I will never forget, I was living with my grandmother during, oh, we, when we were both uh, staying at, uh, what is it, Eastern Virginia medical school for our, I think it was during third year or something like yeah. that. Uh, I was living with my grandmother and she cut her finger while cooking and I, I bought band-aids and they had brown band-aids and it matched her in the way that she looked at it, the way that she just popped. She didn't say anything, but she was just staring at her hand. And it was just, wow. we just understanding that she had never worn a band-aid that matched her skin and she she's old <laughs> like it's just it's profound having someone that looks like you i've had so many kids who who are biracial in this area especially being biracial is not special here where it was kind of in the south i was a an oddity in the south in a lot of different ways but um here having kids say things like you have the same hair as me or we match and those those things matter in such profound ways that I could not express to you what kind of impact that would have, that would have had on me on a, as a child. Or mm -hmm. the only example that I really have is that 
when we were in undergrad at JMU, we had one black professor. Her name was Dr. Her name is Dr. Kia Johnson. She is still very much alive and working and doing wonderful things. But she was a speech pathologist that taught in the department and taught some of our undergrad classes. She was the only black teacher that I've ever had like point blank, the only black teacher. And, but because of that, I went to her for a lot of advice. Um, I went to her about graduate program. I knew I wanted to do audiology and I knew she was in speech, but I asked her advice about a lot of different things, but seeing the level of success that she was able to accomplish as a black woman within the communication sciences and disorders field was really, really inspiring because there were no other examples of that that I was privy to at that point. It was Dr. Johnson and that was it. Um, and I was very thankful that she took an interest in me and was able to help me do things. And I know that you worked with her too, uh, Dakota, yeah. uh, but it was, it, it's just one of those things that you, you don't know what you're missing until you experience it. Yeah. When, uh, when Dr. Piker was on a, a couple months ago, uh, and she, we were kind of talking about how critical it is when you can see someone in a role you never thought you would be able to yes. be in. You know what I mean? Like yes. somebody going on to get a PhD or something who also 100%. has a kid or has a similar life experience and like how that can be the only thing it takes for you to say, oh, wait, I could do that too. You yes. know, it completely change your life. Oh, yeah. ab- absolutely. It, it matters so profoundly. And that's not to say that you can't be that for someone who looks differently than you. It, it, oh, it does take not. interest and it does take compassion and those kinds of things. But seeing someone who has a similar life story to you or who you know doesn't experience the same privilege as everyone else because of the basis of race, it's encouraging because you're like, okay, they were able to make it. I feel like I can also make it. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that's good. She was also just awesome. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. like one of the best teachers. I was really drawn to her. Yeah, I did I did do research with her and she yes. was just, she she was like just so inspiring and cool and yes, and smart. Oh you know, so smart. Just so knew knew what she needed to do. And I and I was when she left uh JMU, we were like, Yeah, you deserve that. <laughs> like you're, you're, you're up to something amazing. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. So Kind of uh, switching gears, can you g- give us like a little bit of like a vocabulary breakdown, like a little education lesson? Like when, oh, we, sure. when we use terms like prejudice or implicit bias, um, there's probably some people listening who aren't as familiar with that. And this might be the first time they're hearing some things like that. Yeah. Can you give us like a really brief synopsis into some of these topics that have really bubbled up this past year? Oh, absolutely. So uh let, let me start this discussion with this discussion can be uncomfortable for a lot of different reasons. And if you're listening and you become uncomfortable, this isn't an attack on you. This certainly is not a, an attack on your race or your experience. Um, but the, there are some hard facts and there are some hard things to come to term with that you may have never had to come to term with before. And so if you are feeling upset, if you are feeling attacked, uh, anything like that, what I would encourage you to do is listen to the entirety of this and then maybe do some research on your own to understand why you're upset. Don't just turn it off because typically when you are affronted with something that has not been your experience so far or is contrary to the belief system that you grew up with, it is hard. And your first reaction is to be upset about it. Uh, You can be upset, but live in that uncomfortable feeling and really deep, 
dive into why you are feeling upset and you may learn something about yourself that you did not know. Yeah, that's good. So diving in. So there's there's a couple different things. So I think the the first thing that might be helpful to talk about, which will play into everything else or is really the foundation of everything else, is something called systemic racism. Everybody knows what racism is or has an idea of what racism is, but systemic racism specifically tends to talk or does talk more about the experience of disenfranchised people, specifically people of color or or Black individuals. Uh, The difference between typical racism, which is what Uh, when you just think that someone hates a group of people based off of their race, the systemic part of it is that you can control the outcomes or the opportunities of a group of people based off of their race. And so what that means is that in a systemically racist society, there have been infrastructures created. This can include laws, uh, housing, education, healthcare, uh, the ability to get a loan, all, all those things that have been created to unfairly advantage some people of than others based on race. And now we see it expanded to like the LGBT community and those kinds of things. Um, and so this is a hard. This is a hard truth. I know it's a hard truth, but just hear me out, people. Uh, when it comes to systemic racism, it's a dominant group of people who control the resources and can exert their power or their influence and to uh, to dictate the lives and decisions of others. So that being said, in the United States, whether you want to or not, or you are actively participating in it or not all white people benefit from systemic racism because these are systems that were made to benefit you other over other people. Uh, This is a system that I have benefited from as a biracial person, because even though I am black, I am also white and I'm a light skinned black person. And so that is a hard thing to swallow. I am not calling you racist. I am not saying that you are <laughs> directly contributing to the to this system that disenfranchises people, but there are things that you just naturally benefit from or specifically that aren't made harder for you on the basis of your skin color. And that is what is called privilege. That is the general term. I think that's what's become really popular this year and widely debated is the idea of privilege. What is privilege? Who has privilege? And getting upset when someone says you have privilege. Privilege is literally not not having something made harder in your life on the basis of your, of your skin tone. And so just do you mind if I use yourself and myself as an example, Dakota? Absolutely. absolutely. Okay. So Dakota and I have very similar backgrounds, different in a lot of ways, but also very, very similar. Dakota and I, if we were both selling a house on the same street with the same exact dimensions and square footage and rooms and backyard and all that jazz, and they were right next to each other, Dakota would likely get his house appraised more than mine. And that's that's just a fact of the system because Dakota is a white man and I am a black woman. And there have been many instances where this has been proven true. And it's only when my husband is white. And so if Dakota was representing his family and selling his house and my husband, Michael, was representing my family and selling our house, our houses would likely be more equitable. But if I were the one showing up and I was the one talking and the pictures of my family were on the walls, 
our house is going to be appraised less simply because Dakota has a privilege that I don't have on the basis of race. And that's rooted in the systemic racism that has been created long before we were born. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a that's a great example. Um, yeah. I re- yeah, I, I think that's a really great way to link those two concepts. I think oftentimes, I don't know why in the conversation they get disjointed, but I think when people understand systemic racism, they can see their own privilege a lot more clearly. Yeah, it, it's interesting for someone to start the conversation with. Well, you have privilege. You, it's things are easier for you. X Y Z. They're probably more likely to have that emotional response compared to starting it with. These systems have been in place for a long time where people are benefiting. You agree yes. with that, right? Now, yes. who do you think is benefiting? Okay, now if you're benefiting, you have a privilege in that situation. I think that's a great way to break it exactly, down. Exactly, exactly. How do you feel like you see systemic racism kind of playing out in the world of audiology? Um, yeah. Like in a one-on-one with patients or more like at large? How do you how do you see that being a factor? I would say that it starts out at large, um, and then we see individual instances from something called implicit and explicit bias, which is what I will get into next. But at large, what we were talking about before, and this goes back into the demographics of the field of audiology and those kinds of things, because systemic racism is a real thing that occurs in our country, even though you have people who are working to get past it, we're not past it yet, and we won't be for many, many years, uh, that, that creates uh, an environment where people of color and other disenfranchised people have a harder time just getting into college to begin with. Uh, you know, an example of systemic racism to, to tie this together is that our school systems, our public school systems are based off of the taxes of, um, excuse me, what's the word? Like home ownership, essentially. And so you are put in these groups based off of the 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 cost of living immediately where you are. So if you are in a a neighborhood that is filled with mansions and people who are making a lot of money and their house costs a lot, that school is going to be better funded than someone who lives in an area full of apartment complexes or people who are receiving subsidies and those kinds of things because it's based off of the taxes of the homes. And so starting from the bottom and rising to the top, your education is going to be worse because you have less resources versus the other group. And then because your education is worse or you have less opportunities, less field trips, less less opportunities to take AP and honors classes, all of those things play into it. The likelihood that you're going to have an application that looks as good as someone else is, is it's disproportionate and it will always be disproportionate. And so based off of that, we know that minorities have a harder time getting into schools, especially minorities from poor environments uh, because they are not as good candidates for re- for for reasons outside of their con- control. Yeah. And so you already have a smaller minority portion going to college. And then from that, you have to choose what degree you're going to get. And let me tell you, and we all know this, audiology degrees are expensive. Yeah. <laughs> they, they are very expensive. Almost none of us get paid during our, our audiology degree or our fourth year. And that creates even more of a disproportionate opportunity because, um, you know, we were fortunate enough to receive a scholarship to go to undergrad. We were also fortunate enough to receive uh, a, a, well, I guess it wasn't really a scholarship, but a scholarship to go to grad school. Yeah. And so we were given opportunities to not have to pay for these huge expenses, but we still were responsible for our health care, our groceries, our rent, all of that jazz. Um, 
And when you take those things in consideration, the demographics of students that pursue an audiology degree, and this is all purely anecdotal from the people that I know and the people that I've talked to, I haven't seen any data actually published on this. They typically have family support. Sure. In one way or another, whether their parents are still helping them pay for their cell phone or their health care or this, that, and the other, even small contributions or contributions. In my personal life, I had no one. And it wasn't because my family didn't want to support me. I come from a poor family. <laughs> they could they could not support me if they wanted to. And there was no safety net. And so that resulted in me having to work a lot. Uh, and you you know this, I, I worked a lot in school. And so when we talk about systemic racism and audiology, all of these tiny dominoes build up into this giant falling out of students that can even pursue this degree because this is an expensive degree that doesn't really give you a whole lot of support unless you choose a program that gives you support, which I think are few and far between. And so Broad picture, systemic racism invades audiology because it invades everything when it comes to yeah. secondary the education system. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's a great example. Not everybody. I, I was very fortunate to have jobs and be able to seek jobs. But I don't know if you knew this, uh, Dakota, but during grad school, I worked 30 hours a week. And then I had a 20-hour GA <laughs> on top of that, that is exhausting. In a doctorate and program. <laughs> in a doctorate program. And it's yeah. just people, people can't do that. And it's, and I did that for so long, it became normal. But once I was done with that, I was exhausted. <laughs> it was, I was grumpy all the time because I was just so tired. Um, and so there are a lot of things stacked against uh, disenfranchised people because we don't have the money to explore some of these options that everybody else has. We certainly don't have the money if an emergency happens. And so you were limited in, in offering opportunities to, to poor groups of people. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that's a great example. I hadn't even, I was wondering if it was going to be more something like, you know, things, other things within like clinical care. But I think that's a great example is just the limitation to even get into the field is just yeah. so hampered by systemic racism and the history there. You had mentioned talking a little bit about implicit bias or, oh, you know, yeah. those other terms. so yeah, no, absolutely. So the, this, I think is probably one of the, the, how we can see it in our clinics and, and what we see when we're, we're working with patients and the students. So there is something called explicit bias and implicit bias, and they mean very two very different things. And, and I think that on surface level, it's easy to understand, but this is when you may get uncomfortable or people may get uncomfortable with the, the conversation. So starting with explicit bias, that is something that you know you believe in. You're, you are conscious about that belief. It influences your life and your thought process and your decision making. And so when we talk about explicit biases, we're talking about like overt racism, uh, acts of racism, acts of prejudice, things that are very blatantly racist, where if everybody sees it, we're like, oh, that was racist. This person has a racist belief. Implicit bias is when it gets really, really tricky because that's something that is unconscious that you believe or that you think or that you have been taught um, and also dictates some of your thought process and decision making. But the really tricky thing about implicit bias is that your implicit bias that you're unaware of can be in opposition to the things that you consciously try to do or you consciously say. So uh, an example of that would be if you are, it, 
you are a huge proponent of equity and, you know, uh, racial justice and, you know, raising people up. But then when you see a group of black men walking on the same sidewalk towards you, you cross the street. You don't cross the street because you're thinking, oh, I hate black people. <laughs> like That's not the thought process. But you cross the street because something inside of you is making you think, oh, this is this is an unsafe situation. But the the bias, the implicit part of it is that you're only doing that if it's a specific racial group versus if it were a group of teen bo- uh, white boys or something like that. Sure. Um, and so and, like, implicit biases can also become explicit once you become aware of them. But again, most of your implicit biases are going to be something that you're completely unaware of or unbeknownst to you are racist in the root of their being. Uh, A great example of that would be microaggressions. Uh, A microaggression are things that are said or done to people of color that in their roots are based in prejudice or based in a racist remark, but typically aren't meant to be racist towards that person. Uh, And that's based off of ideas that you have grown up with thinking are true, but aren't actually true. Um, A microaggression that I used to experience, but have not experienced in a long time, especially since moving, was that people used to tell me all the time in the South that I spoke so well. (laughs) <laughs> that, that as a compliment, they'd be like, you, you, after meeting me or after I did whatever I had to do, they would just say, you speak so well. Why this is a microaggression and why this is an implicit bias is because looking the way that I do as a, as a biracial person and in the South, if you are biracial, you're not biracial. You are the category of group, whatever you other race you are. And so in the South, I'm black. Um, so being a black person, they they were assuming that a black person would not speak eloquently or would not have a knowledge base to speak the way that I was speaking in whatever environment. So they would compliment me on that. But that itself is implicitly biased because now you're assuming that black people don't have the ability to just talk the way that I talk. Uh, those kinds of things. Sure. Um, another example of implicit bias that I just thought of, you know, uh, Again, Dakota and I had the same scholarship in undergrad. Uh, We were both very lucky. It changed our lives in a lot of different ways. When I have talked about this scholarship with uh, some people in our program during our grad program, when I mentioned that you had the scholarship and I also had the scholarship, what was said to me is that you deserve the scholarship because you worked hard and I got the scholarship due to um, because I was Black. Which, oh, if you knew the scholarship, it's honestly, <laughs> truthfully, the opposite. <laughs> but it's just, it's, it, but those kinds of things are said to me. And it's, they, they were saying, oh, you, you got that because they were trying to meet a quota or something like that without them knowing anything about the scholarship or anything like that. But that's sure. based off of an implicit bias that they had that Dakota is a, is a white man who's been working hard his whole life to get to where he is, which is true. But then looking at me and saying, oh, Logan lucked out because she is black. And this could have happened to any other black person in her position. And you're, you're taking away the accomplishments that I also had. Um, and so that, that's the difference between explicit and implicit bias. Gotcha. Do you feel like there's any other ways that implicit bias plays out um, clinically? Yeah. Like- patients or of course yeah 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 so in your patient care so I want everybody to really reflect on your patients so 
late patients, uh, this is something that, that comes up a lot. If you have patients that are consistently late, is there a type of patient you're more likely to see late than another? That's an implicit bias. Um, and so I, I'm happy to share my own implicit biases because this is, this is not something that once you learn about it, you're cured. You're going to have yeah. implicit biases your whole life. Your goal should be to identify them and improve them. So an implicit bias of mine that I am more than willing to share is in, in California, we have a very, very large Spanish-speaking population. Uh, not a surprise, but it is a population. When I would have late patients and they were Spanish-speaking, I would be less likely to see them than if they were English-speaking because I knew I was going to use an interpreter. And when you take case history with an interpreter, it was it's going to take you 10 or 15 minutes versus 5 mm -hmm. to 10 minutes. And that was something that I realized really, really easy. And I was, excuse me, really early. And I was so embarrassed that I had let myself do that. And so think about those kinds of things. If you are seeing a group of late patients, you need to decide in your head what the cutoff is regardless of who they are or what they need. Because if you are seeing them and you start to notice a pattern, oh, I always see the English-speaking families and I always say no to the Spanish-speaking families, that is based in prejudice and that's an implicit bias that you have to change. Another bias would be scrutinizing the work performed by your student of color. Uh, th that's something that I experienced a lot when I was working in the South where a patient would come in and they would be a walk-in and they would say something isn't working and very clearly would be like their domes would need to be changed or their wax yeah. guards would need to be changed. And I would do those kinds of things. And those patients would look over their devices like I stole something from them or that I had implanted something in them. I had a patient one time during my, my graduate assistantships that came back the next day and said, that girl did something to my hearing aids. I don't want her to touch it again. And I told my supervisor, I said, literally all I did was change the wax guard and the dome. And my supervisor said, oh, well, watch this. She took off the dome. She took put the dome back on and she gave it to the man. And he was like, oh, this sounds so much better. And it's just one of those things that happens. That's an implicit bias within your practice that you can see your students having done to them, but also you may be doing it to your students and not realizing it um, sure. because it's based off of something, again, that even though you may not outwardly want to express or believe, but it's just something that has been under the surface for so long or something that you were taught as a young person that you haven't quite gotten over yet. Yeah, that, that's a great tie-in to something I was really hoping to talk to you about because you've taught me so much over the years through your experiences with preceptors and now I'm assuming, you know, some precepting roles of your own in terms of, I don't know if the, be the best phrasing for it is like sticking up for your students oh, who yeah. are minorities, but, you know, approaching those conversations differently and the ways that you felt, I don't know, it, it, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like <laughs> neglected by your preceptor, you know, yeah. like they, yeah. they kind of left you out to dry. Could you kind of speak a little bit to that experience and yeah. what advice you would give for preceptors? who are not racial minorities and how they can, you know, be best equipping their students. Yeah. I think when we're talking about precepting students and my experiences and experiences moving forward, I think that it's important for everybody to recognize that there is already a power dynamic that exists and there, there should be a power dynamic in some ways. You are their supervisor. They are here to learn from you, but because there is a power dynamic that is also not 
equitable in the sense that your student probably isn't getting paid. And if they're getting paid, they're not going to get paid a whole lot in most cases. I know there are some experiences that, that are very different than that. But because there is a power dynamic, there are things that your student is going to be willing to do and put up with or say or let you say that in otherwise in other facets of their life would never roll, would never be okay. Sure. So, so keep that in mind because you will always be able to think out of all the examples that I'm going to give or what I'm about to talk about, you're always going to be able to think of someone and be like, that wasn't the case for Timmy down the road. That wasn't the, the case for Susie Q. And, and that's because one, there's a power dynamic that exists and they just may not have been comfortable enough with you to, to, to ever tell you the truth about the situation. And two, yeah. because everybody's experience is different. My experience as a light-skinned biracial person from the South is going to be completely different than someone who grew up in the Midwest. It just is going to be different based off of the environment that we're in and how people perceive things. And so one of the things that I would run into a lot with patients while working in the South was distrust. <laughs> they, they really didn't trust me very much at all. And like, like the example that I was saying before, the scrutinization of my work, or if I did something that helped them, they would always praise me and be like, oh, you did such a good job. What a great job, those kinds of things. But then uh, by nature of living in the South in an area where uh, people very much believe in the Confederacy and it's a very rural area and those kinds of things, Confederate flags are rampant and everywhere. Um, there would be things that were said to me that were so incredibly dehumanizing and inappropriate. And I, I would like to think that my preceptors didn't say anything because either they were not listening and the, there are things that stick out to me uh, as someone who's used to having things said to them that are inappropriate that would not stick out to other people all the time because it's not something you're, you're taught to listen for or listen to, but also because it's their practice and they don't want to alienate a patient that they hope to come back, which is another issue in itself. But, sure. you know, when, when I was in the South, I would have very very blatantly in front of my supervisor. And I know she heard it because we talked about it later. We did talk about it. He was telling me how this, how he was disappointed that Barack Obama was more interested in the 13th amendment than the second amendment, the 13th amendment being uh, the amendment that abolished slavery. And he asked me what my thoughts were on that. Oh gosh! Uh, and it's, and it's one of those things, when you grow up in an area like this, you really learn how to twist and wiggle and dive and redirect and those kinds of things. And that's what I did for a really long time, especially when I was working in other people's practices, because how I viewed my rotations is, oh, this is their practice. I am visiting and I don't want to do anything that's going to offend their patients and also have them not want me to come back uh, mm -hmm. because I'm not getting paid. I have to get hours. I have to deal, deal with this. What was disappointing for me in that situation was that my preceptor heard it. I heard it. The man was demanding an answer from me and she didn't do anything. We just mm -hmm. listened. And her, after, after I gave this man my answer, which was very, a very general, you know, 
I think that all the amendments are, are are important, and I can understand how different amendments would mean different things for different people. Like those kinds of just you're like I love the Constitution. Yes, okay, yes. Like I am so proud to be an American. Which on it sounds funny, it gets Dakota, you out of it every time. but I I have said it. <laughs> I have said it more than I can count because it's it's what ends the conversation. Yeah. Um, but my preceptor asked me instead of saying anything to this man who was, who was trying to challenge me about my blackness versus his ability to, to <laughs> carry an, a gun around. That was what the conversation was really about. Yeah, um, yeah. She, she, she did say, Oh, do you want to, do you want to step out and you can just, you know, take a little break. And I said, well, no, it's okay. Cause I deal with this all the time, but that's all that we said about it. She didn't say anything to him. We didn't talk about it in a bigger context at the afternoon. It was summed up to something like, well, this is just something you're, you'll have to deal with. And the most disappointing thing about that is until I moved away, I thought that that was true. I, I genuinely thought this is my life. People are going to tell me that I speak well. I'm always going to get comments about where I'm from or what nationality I am. When people ask you your nationality, they're really asking about your ethnicity. But it's so funny to respond, I'm American, and then just see the confusion <laughs> on their face um, and those kinds of things. Or being treated suspiciously. Uh, until I moved away, I thought that that was life. And then being privy to all these other things where it's like, oh, my gosh, people don't treat each other this way in different parts of the country was was wild. But I say this to say is that it is your responsibility as someone who is teaching a student, one, how to handle patients like that. Because if that were to happen to me today, I, I wouldn't be harsh. And I would certainly finish whatever service that I needed to do as long as it wasn't so dehumanizing that I couldn't move forward. But it's just you need to say something to that patient and you need to tell your student that that's something that's not acceptable to be said to them. Uh, otherwise, you're going to have professionals live their lives thinking that it's appropriate for someone to ask them if the amendment to abolish slavery is a good one. That doesn't yeah. make any sense. Yeah. And, and that's what I was missing in a lot of my rotations. Nothing was ever said because it's just like, well, that's just the way it is. It's the way it is because you let it happen. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, and so I would hope that people would stand up for their students and also have an example for them to show you, this is this is not acceptable for someone to talk to you this way. You you should stand up for yourself and you should also let them know that it's not acceptable for them to talk to you another way like that ever again. Yeah. I th yeah, that's thank you for sharing that. I know that that <laughs> I know you've handled it well and you're like, you know, it is what <laughs> it is, but like that really is just so ridiculous and and awful and I just hate hate to hear things like that, but I know, like, I know exactly, I can see the patients in my head who I know if they were seeing another clinician would have no problem, you know, saying something like that. Yeah. And I'm so appreciative of your perspective because, and, and I think one of the big things that's come out of conversations this year has been the idea that, you know, people of color aren't like responsible for educating, mm -hmm. you know, people not of color, like how things are supposed to be, or like what's right to say and what's wrong to say, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. That's not your job to teach us. I'm really appreciative when you do, but like in that situation, it's not your job to stick up for yourself and to teach him and to teach your super. It's on that preceptor when they sign up to say, I'm responsible for this student's education, but also their safety, yeah. you know, and I think you could fold, 
you know, their sense of humanity, their sense of self-worth kind of into their safety to say that in those moments is it's, and I've already had to in the past year twice have to have a conversation like that with a patient in front of, in front of a student I was supervising yeah. um, who was a female of color to say, that's absolutely inappropriate. You're not like, and I immediately recalled that you've told me this story before that story and thinking like it could have been so much more comfortable for me to just say like kind of sh- shake my head and say yeah. oh my gosh let's just get through this and when it's over I'll talk to her and say I'm so sorry that happened yeah. but if I don't do anything in this moment then I'm I'm reinforcing a system for him to go out and do that again I'm reinforcing a system where she doesn't feel you know valued as a student and as a clinician and I'm reinforcing yeah. myself as someone who isn't willing to stick up for someone in a situation where I have the privilege to be able to stick up and have you know a sense of safety so Absolutely. I'm so, I'm so appreciative of you sharing stories like that because it really teaches me a lot Oh well thank you for saying that and I'm and I'm so proud that you are willing to stick up for your students too because that's how it starts and that and that's how it should start and continue but it's just when it comes to like educating people and those kinds of things there are very different beliefs and you're absolutely Absolutely right. It is not anybody's responsibility to teach you about your shortcomings uh, in regards to racial understanding and racial justice and those kinds of things. And and it's it's and honest to goodness, that's a very privileged point of view to think. Oh well, I don't know anything about black people. Let me ask my one black friend about all these things. Uh, I would say that uh, because of where I grew up and the privileges that I have experienced because I'm biracial in the area that I've grown up. I have become very, very open to sharing my experiences and sharing my the, the limited things that I know from the little bubble that I lived in because it does help people learn and it does help people change their behavior or look at things that they've done in the past to realize, oh, I was re- that, that was an implicit bias of mine that I have to change <laughs> immediately because I don't understand how it's affecting other people. Um, but it's it certainly has been a learned behavior based off of me trying to excel my career uh, and and having supervisors and employers ask me inappropriate questions that they would not ask anybody else, which also yeah. brings me to another point, if you don't mind me spilling of into course, this, Dakota. Uh, if you are a preceptor of a person of color, this is, again, another hard truth that you need to hear. Just because you are interested in something about that person does not mean you have the right to know. <laughs> it doesn't mean yeah. you have the right to know. It does not mean you have the right to ask. And I think, again, it, it really comes back to that power dynamic because I've been mm-hmm. asked all kinds of things and I am already a very open person. If you ask me something, I'm going to give you an honest answer about it because that's who I am. Uh, but because you are a student that's probably being unpaid in someone's clinic where you have to get hours to graduate, you're going to answer almost anything that they ask you, or you're going to share things about yourself that you wouldn't share in typical company. And some examples of this would be, uh, I have really big curly hair. Every single preceptor I've ever had has touched my hair. (laughs) And, and and, And again, if they were to ask me, because there is a power dynamic, I always said yes, because I don't want to make it uncomfortable for them. And that's the worst part. It's already uncomfortable for me, but I don't want to make it uncomfortable for you. So I'm going to say yes. Everybody asks about my ethnicity because I'm tan. It's it's not very clear what races I am. So everybody asks about that. Family origins, religious affiliations, feelings about politics, um, who's at home if I have two parents at home those kinds of things. 
these are questions that are so frequently asked of, pe of, of, of students of color, people of color, because of curiosity, because they are different. But you are exoticizing someone and they are not exotic. They are just a person living. Their experience is wow. just different than yours. And so I, I cannot say enough that if you're working with students of color, you do not have any authority to ask them anything about their personal lives or their genome uh, because it has nothing to do with why they're there or what they're doing. It, it's only to, to, to serve yourself, to, to it, itch that scratch that you've been having about them, and it's, it, but it's really none of your business. Wow. I had I did not know that about, especially about the preceptors asking to touch your hair. Oh my god! <laughs> a lot of that. I mean, I think yeah. The the I think people hear that that kind of like I've heard that before, but I've never heard it referred to as like exoticizing someone. It makes it makes so much more sense. Like you're you're you know taking away their humanity and turning them into something to be studied. You know, <laughs> not a I think that's a really great way to put it. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we are like at the end of our time. Okay. Wow. Where did it go? That was, that was so insightful and so helpful. I, I mean, like, do you have anything else that you want to share real quick? Like, we've got just a teeny bit of time. You know, I, I, I think as we're winding things down, you know, this is a hard conversation to have with yourself. It's certainly a hard conversation to have with others. But if you were made uncomfortable at any point during this conversation, that typically is a sign that you have something that you have subconsciously learned at some point in your life that needs you needs your full attention and needs you to correct. And it, this is not something that ever stops. I learn things about myself all the time because I grew up again in a very rural community that made me feel like the white part of me was why I was successful at things and I had to overcome the black part of me. There are so many things that had to be unpacked about that and so many things that I implicitly believed because of that. And so you should not live your life thinking that you have overcome racism and your life is squeaky clean. It is, I guarantee you it is not, but it takes you living with your discomfort for you to identify these things and to grow from them. Wow. Mic drop. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what a, what a perfect way to end that. Um, wow. Thank you so much, Logan, for coming of course. on. Thank you. I'm really hoping that our listeners have a lot to chew on here and that they start some conversations that are going to, that are lead to some, some real growth. I really loved your real world examples. I think it's going to be really helpful to people to contextualize a lot of the things we talked about. So I hope so. It's awesome. Okay. Well, <laughs> thank you again. What a, what a great way to end the year. I so appreciate you taking the time all the way, you know, multiple time zones away. <laughs> cool. But thanks again for joining me. Um, no, give me just a second. You. I'm going to switch it over to questions. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com slash ear. That's speechtherapypd.com slash E-A-R.